Hi, it's Todd. Quick note before we get started. We apologize for the audio quality, particularly when I'm speaking. It can be rough, but we thought the quality of the content was sufficient that it made sense to post this material. Fortunately, our guest, Roby Simons, comes through loud and clear. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Driverless. I'm Todd Berkman a partner in the business group here at Tacarellas, and one of the co-founders are Autonomous Vehicle and Artificial Intelligence Technologies Group. I'm joined today by Robert A. Simons, Professor of Urban Planning and Real Estate at the Levin College of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State. Roby, welcome to Driverless. Thanks, Todd. Pleasure to be here. I want to just jump right in. You finished writing and put to the publisher a book on parking and land use, but that's not why you're here. It also involves the effect of driverless vehicles on parking and land use. How'd you come to be interested in driverless vehicles? Well, I had a sabbatical coming up and I was looking for a good topic to work on. And I visited with a friend of mine down in Florida, and this came up as one of the good topics. So I decided what would be more fun than spending 15 months writing a book and researching one of the coolest trends that could totally transform real estate and uh, urban activities over the next 10 years and beyond. And in two or three sentences, uh, what did you find? I think we're up for really transformational changes to parking and land use starting about 2030. Between 2030 and 2040, I think we're going to have market penetration of between 10 and 40% of the vehicle trips being changed from personal vehicles to mobility fleets, and that'll decrease the parking substantially. Once parking demand is decreased, it'll open up a lot of downtown parking lots and downtown parking structures for adaptive reuse or new land uses. And it'll also open up our home personal garages for all sorts of storage and other living activities. I love that summary. Summary. I love that summary, Roby. But let's dig into some of the specifics because the book's interesting almost more for the detail. Maybe if you could describe for us how you develop that forecast, because that's by far the most granular forecast I've heard. Well, there's actually a number of people that have taken a crack at forecasts like this. CBRE, for example, has a low, medium, and high scenario that they've come up with over the next uh, 40 years or so. And there's another about uh, 20 articles in the peer review literature, and the popular press. These are rigorous reports as well. Some in The Economist, some standalone. And I've got a total of 38 different forecasts of people that I would consider expert in driverless vehicles. That includes a market penetration rate and a certain date. So I've abstracted all that and coming up with a, uh, an approach exclusively using that. And the other thing we did was we looked at different technologies, not driverless cars at all, but we looked at five different technology adoptions, online shopping, marijuana, 
legislation adoption, horses to cars, digital cameras, actually uh, film cameras to smartphones through digital cameras, and one other technology where we looked at how quickly those were adopted over time and compared driverless vehicles with future projections to the technology adoption of those other technologies. And are you expecting sort of geographic differences in adoption? So for instance, could we expect urban areas to see adoption of autonomous vehicles more quickly than rural areas? Well, sure. My projections really pertain to urban areas in the U.S. Rural areas of their own market. It's probably not going to be enough density of service that allow for development of efficient uh, robo-fleets to service those areas. So people continue to own their own vehicles. And plus, they need vehicles for work and farming and other things. But my forecast would apply to large and medium-sized cities in the U.S. I would make some exceptions in areas that had bad weather. Bad weather would be a lot of snow, for example. Those cities would probably be slower to adopt. Similar to how we're seeing the testing by Waymo start in Arizona, Florida, some of the better weather areas? Sure, those are a bit low-hanging fruit in terms of the things that can obfuscate the efficiency of some of the technology. But eventually, those, I believe those things will be overcome. But it's going to take some time. And did you look primarily at the United States, or did you take a global view? Well, my forecasts pertain to the United States, but I've also looked at adoption in a number of other countries like China and Israel and some of the European countries. And, but I think that the United States is one of the fastest countries to be adopted because that's where almost all the testing is taking place. Some of the other countries don't have testing, largely because there's a United Nations law or rule about what constitutes a driver and if you need one in a car. United States doesn't have to worry about that problem. And let's pick at that a little bit because one of the differences in nomenclature that I think illustrates what you're trying to do is your reference to driverless vehicles, whereas I call them autonomous vehicles. Sure, they're really synonymous, but I'm emphasizing driverless vehicle because the autonomous vehicle doesn't necessarily affect behavior by behavior, I mean the desire of people to own cars. So I'm interested in the driverless side of it because it's the driver that is the human being that's going to be deciding to own a car or use a robo-taxi service to get around instead. Once we have people out of their personally owned vehicles, then you're going to have changes in parking demand. If you own an automated vehicle and you're still parking it in your private parking garage at night at home, and you're bringing it to your parking lot at work, then you're not really affecting any change in parking demand. You're just having a little more fun when you're getting from point A to point B. It's when you decide to ditch your cars or ditch one of your two cars or ditch two of your three cars that we'll see a difference in market penetration for robo-fleets to replace self-driving experiences. And is that why the, I'll call them catastrophizers, who 
talk about autonomous vehicles as if they're going to be an environmental disaster or maybe focused on the wrong considerations. As I understand it, really you've got the price point of what I'll call a driverless vehicle, which is gonna make it disadvantageous for private ownership, whereas you can drive the cost per trip down dramatically if we do share these vehicles, even if the initial capital cost is quite a bit higher than say a $30,000 Toyota. Make a driverless vehicle of some type that's uh, got an Good automated rideshare service or a taxi. That would cost about $2.50 a mile, of which about 60% of the cost is the driver. The next notch down would be if you had a, a fancy personal vehicle, you might be spending as much as a dollar twenty to a dollar fifty a mile. This would be a fancy SUV or a premium car. Uh, that if you take another step down, if you got an average vehicle, you're probably spending about a dollar a mile. If you have an old beater that you're running, might be, that the cost there might be between fifty and eighty cents a mile. At that point, you're spending more on maintenance, but still, that's what it costs in the long run. Contrasting that with what you might spend on a driverless vehicle, if you were to drive by yourself in a driverless vehicle, that might cost about 50 cents a mile. And if you had, say, two and a half passengers on average, between two and three people in the car, you might be able to drive that cost down to about 20 cents a mile. So you can see that the change uh, for private vehicle to single Uber might be about 50 cents a mile or about half the cost. And if you go down to where you're sharing rides with others, you might be well, you know, below that, or you may be a quarter or 20% of the existing cost. At that point, a household, say earning $60,000 a year, might be able to save about 10,000, I'm sorry, 10% of that cost or about $5,000 a year on transportation. And that's enough to get people's attention. It's not gonna happen overnight, but in the long run, the difference in cost spread is probably gonna be enough to drive a lot of people into the robo fleet realm because it'll be more convenient and cheaper. That sounds like a win, more convenient and cheaper, but you studied sort of consumer attitudes towards this, right? Didn't you look in North Carolina, I believe? Yeah, we did some survey, but we wanted to see how quickly people might be willing to adopt. So I contacted a friend of mine who works for various rideshare companies, and we had about 215 passengers where we administered a little survey. So we asked, uh, we asked them if they'd uh, consider going around in a driverless vehicle, and uh, 20% or so were right on board right away. And another 40% said, sure, I'd be well leaning toward it. Maybe wouldn't want to be the first one to do it, but if it was uh, reasonably, seemed reasonably safe, I'd be going for it. And about a third said, never, no way, forget about it. Scared of it, won't do it. If we added a factor that you would cut the cost by 50%, more people would in fact, uh, all consider doing it. So it, it upped the market penetration rate. But when we asked people if they would ride with strangers, a lot of people then pushed back. They were a little bit afraid of riding with strangers. 
although there were still some people that said it would make it even more attractive. So what I'm hearing there is some pushback of the idea of writing with people you don't know. Now, if you unpack that a little bit, there's different ways where that could be uh, mitigated. One way would be that uh, you might in fact be writing with your wife or your child, and that's another way to get the cost down by 50%. Or you could ride with somebody that you didn't know, say you commuted to work, and on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, from your neighborhood, somebody you didn't know lives three blocks away, also goes down town to when you're where you work. So you didn't know them at the beginning of the process, but you would know them after a while. And it could be somebody that's, you know, it's gonna get the cost down. So that would be more relaxing. They'd be familiar after a while. And then there's the pure stranger who you just meet for that ride. And then there'll be some of that as well. But I think as long as we do this more often and you can ride in um, rider pool type of deals down in say Boston and other cities where I've done that a few times and it's really no big deal. So I think eventually the market will adjust to that. Taste and preferences of riders will change and it'll become acceptable. And let's think just on a ride basis how this would work. So if this ride share picks me up in my neighborhood, picks someone else up close to me, drives the approximately 11 miles downtown in the morning. Does that vehicle then stop downtown, take rides as other ride hailing companies might now, and then wait to take me back home? Would it be a private ownership that I've shared? Or do you think that ride hailing companies may own this vehicle Who's going to bear the capital expense of these autonomous vehicles? Well, you're asking a couple of different questions. Let's deal with the first part first. The logistics would be that uh, you would have an appointment to be picked up at 7.52. Somebody else is going to be picked up at 7.54. And somebody else might be picked up at 7.57. So what we don't want to do is have the shared ride vehicle take a lot longer than it would take you to get downtown by yourself if you were to drive, because time is money. On the other hand, when you get downtown, you might have to troll around for parking, so that might eat up a little bit of time. And you may have to walk from your parking lot or wherever you parked into your office. So it's very important that everybody's on time. So you'd be rated as a passenger for how punctual you are, and you've got to really be on the dot. That way everybody's is gonna win. And yes, the vehicle would probably pick people up, and if you had, you would put in to the program that you need to be downtown by 825, then the vehicle would probably avoid for making by avoid making you late because that way you could rate you could rate that company that picked you up. There's going to be a competitive nature for that. There might be several companies around that would be, be able to provide the service. And if they make you late a lot of times, then you'll go to another company. So that would that would affect whether that particular vehicle would pick up an additional passenger. Now, if the tax would be picked up without making you late, then probably would pick it up. Everybody would be dropped off door to door, picked up at the door, dropped off at the door. In terms of who's owning it, I think it's going to be a, uh, a three-legged stool of a Detroit type of car-making company, a tech company like Google, Waymo, one of those firms, Mobileye perhaps, that is uh, expert in putting up the technology and the science of 
mapping and dealing with the LIDAR and the radar and the sonar and the GPS mapping and all the other uh, physical pieces of equipment that go into safely guiding the car. And then there's a ride share company. It's the ones we know, the popular firms, there's three or four of them that, uh, you know, they're apps. These uh, firms are in charge of organizing the pickups and the drop-offs and the billing. So those three firms would team up. There would be uh, two or three or maybe more companies within each market that would compete for service, ideally. And each one would have their own fleet and the fleet would share knowledge with the other vehicles in there. And so the economics would be that they'd have to compete for your business and you'd have to compete to be a good passenger. And at the end of the day, uh, the supply would equal the demand. So that means that there's probably a peak for a peak of demand in the morning commute and another peak of demand in the evening commute. And a town like Cleveland might have uh, say 3,000 of these vehicles floating around, replacing say 30,000 private vehicles with another 10,000 private vehicles still floating around the market. There'd be fewer vehicles and the vehicles that there were would be utilized a lot more. But you know, when the morning rush hour peak is over, say 9.30 or so, then a lot of the vehicles would go to a staging area, probably run by the rideshare companies that are dealing with managing the vehicles on the ground and it would be located next to the uh, downtown CBD, but not in it, in a cheap place. And they would do the cleaning and servicing and charging the vehicles there. To understand how profound the impact would be, I think it may help if you discuss how many parking spots there are right now per vehicle in the typical urban area, depending on region. It's quite a range, actually. You got an area like uh, Austin or San Francisco or Chicago or Washington D.C. that are heavy transit-oriented places. They're going to have fewer parking spaces needed because you have a higher market penetration rate of parking. At the other end of the scale, you've got cities like uh, Denver and Houston and uh, maybe Tampa and Raleigh, which have some mass transit, but essentially just buses. If there's any rail, it's pretty light. So those areas are going to have uh, between two and a half and four parking spaces per household in the metro area. If you go to the central city, it's going to be maybe double or triple that. So there's a lot of extra parking all over town because it's got to be there at home. It's got to be there at work. It's got to be at the shopping mall. And it's got to be you know, the occasional other places. Uh, those figures do not include on-street parking. So if you add that, you have another space or so per household, maybe more. Wow. So that's extraordinary how much land could be dedicated to uses other than parking if we get our private vehicle ownership shrunk so dramatically. That's right. We would need all the lanes of traffic that we have in our streets. We could dedicate those to bigger sidewalks or to bicycle lanes or scooter lanes or skateboard lanes, walking lanes, bicycle lanes. And then uh, we could take the parking out of the land use. We have a lot of impervious surface, a lot of driveways, 
lot of surface parking that could be vastly reduced, freeing up that space for densification and making urban areas into more walkable and exciting and thriving and vibrant places that would be more attractive. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't even thought about that, but even just thinking about biking, say from the suburbs downtown, if you've got so few vehicles relative to what we have now, you could easily redeploy entire streets for biking or walking or something like that and enhance the safety of biking dramatically. Sure, that's biking as a recreational activity. Uh, but I think the more likely alternative would be to have in the last mile, there's a first mile, last mile argument, first mile is from home to the mass transit and uh, the last mile is from the mass transit to your workplace or just in downtown in general, being able to get around on small vehicles that you rent by the half hour, like these scooters and bikes, that's probably the wave of the future. I expect those to be more popular. They're so cheap to deploy, the barrier of entry is very low and assuming people are careful and safe when they drive them and we don't have a lot of vehicle deaths, uh, that would be a good way to go. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a vivid picture of core urban areas. What happens with your large regional shopping malls like Beachwood Place that's surrounded by oceans of parking that's no longer going to be necessary if people are using a ride sharing to get to and from? Right, so there's three things that could happen to places like that. Maybe four. One would be to add more shopping if that, in fact, could be supportive of market demand. Or you can add housing there if market demand is there for housing. Some of those malls would be ideal staging areas for the nighttime because those robo-fleets are going to need a place to stage vehicles near the morning pickup and suburban shopping malls are ideal for that. There's goo gobs of extra parking there. And the last use for that kind of space might be for parks or extra land, just passive recreation. Did you look at all as to what this does with property values and how much of a shift we'd see there? I haven't really thought that through. I'm going to have to defer that answer to that to the next time we talk, and I'll try to work up some thoughts on that. It's a great question. Yeah. No, I mean, that one fascinates me. I've seen some headlines, but I don't know how much integrity there is, but they're talking about trillions of dollars in value shift in the United States. So, you so, know, again, that's, that's worth what you paid for it, but it is an interesting ramification of this. Well, I'm actually writing a scholarly paper right now on whether or not driverless vehicles are going to increase or decrease urban sprawl. And I'm about a third of the way through working, uh, working my brain through how to handle that problem. And that's that would, of course, affect property values because if driverless cars would mean that people would want to live downtown on the urban lots that were used as parking that now would be redeveloped for housing and retail, that would mean that would strengthen the urban car and that's where the value would go. On the other hand, if uh, commuting in a driverless vehicle is so pleasant and laid back that there's no more road rage and you actually find it relaxing, People might extend their typical commute, which is now around, say, 30 minutes in areas that are not highly congested. Not one of the coastal cities, not the big, not San Francisco or New York, but uh, in other areas. Uh, two and a half an hour is a typical commute. 
Maybe that could be extended to 45 minutes or an hour, in which case the value add would go out of the exurbs uh, where you could get a, a nicer house. Haven't sorted that one through yet. Great question, but that the, uh, the value would follow where people will relocate on the margin. That's terrific. I really appreciate your being here and maybe let's cut it right here and we'll pick the interview back up shortly. And so for listeners, we appreciate your joining us for part one of at least part two, perhaps part three. In the interest of full disclosure, I worked with Roby with a colleague of mine, Jeff Carr, who was a law student at Cleveland State, now an admitted lawyer, on both a survey of the law of autonomous vehicles in the United States and globally, and then also the ethics of uh, driverless vehicles. So we'll delve into that in future interviews. Thanks for joining us, Roby. My pleasure. Over and out.